Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Yeah, I used the analogy of the game of 20 questions versus the game of Battleship. Um, in Battleship, you can ask a question that's like, hey, is there a ship at B4? And we do a lot of questions like that where we're like, hey, are you a racist? <laughs> and no matter what they say, we're not going to be surprised. We're either going to think they're a liar or that they're admitting you know, guilt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey there. On today's episode, we're going to talk about productive disagreement, learning to love, and learning to have healthy conflict. But before we unpack that, I think it would be productive to have a check-in round. I disagree with you. <laughs> See? Well, let's do it anyway. We're doing it already. All right. So we will check in now as we always do. Our check-in question for today is, what is the worst argument you've had at work? So this one is related to a former business that I had that was going through a tough time. We had been acquired um, and the business that acquired us was not doing well and like shit was kind of hitting the fan around us. And I had a conversation with some of my day-to-day partners where their feeling was we should kind of jump ship. And my feeling was we should stick it out and like mm-hmm. make it work. And it just felt, I just felt really alone. I felt really abandoned in the moment. And so the disagreement was, it was hard to resolve because it really boiled down to like different perceptions of what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wouldn't even say in hindsight that uh, that anybody was right or wrong. It was like a a total values-based judgment kind of thing. But um, but yeah, I remember being really shook by that and like sitting in the car and just like staring into space, wondering what it all means. So that's probably my answer. Yeah, that sounds pretty bad. It's heavy. Uh, it's heavy, <laughs> yeah. Mine we're also. all fine. <laughs> we all made it. Uh, mine was a similarly existential work thing uh, at a prior company when... I was given my equity agreement and uh, it did Mm. not reflect what had been promised to me when I came Mm. on board. It was very different than a lot of previous conversations that had been had. And I was not uh, chill about it at all. I was not (laughs) thoughtful or balanced. Um, I did not take a walk around the block. I freaked the fuck out. And it was, um, it felt like a betrayal for mm-hmm. real because I had given certain things up to do this and right. obviously done so under false pretenses. Uh, yeah, it was not great. Uh, it was right. it was not great. So um, both of those arguments might have been more productive if you and I had had some different skills at that time. I think that's probably true. All right. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Let's just start with uh, 
Why do we even need disagreement, Aaron? So I find this one interesting to explore because I'm not very good at it. Like I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold myself up as like an example of great disagreeer or great conflict mediator. Um, and so when I think about this question, I sort of have like the theory-based response and then I have like my emotional response. Mm-hmm. And my emotional response, by the way, like from the check-in question on is like, Ooh! but but I want to get good at it so I'm here like I'm present to to learn Um, and I think the the theory-based response is when we know that we're navigating complexity where there's a lot of dynamics and a lot of change and a lot of different kind of uh, realities happening at the same time we need disagreement as a way to do sense making like we actually Mm -hmm. need if we don't have disagreement that means that the most likely uh, outcome is that we're going to get it wrong because we're all seeing it the exact same way. And if we all see something the exact same way, either we're lying to each other, which is not great, or we have a monoculture of people that really do perceive the world in the exact same way, which is also not great. Mm-hmm. And so right. I think the the real answer is like in complexity, if we want to know what is actually going on, and if we want to learn and improve and grow, both interpersonally and strategically and operationally, we need to disagree. We need conflict. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And it's so easy to be in a culture, in a team where things are just like smooth and swimming along and where even the slights that could become disagreements in other situations get smoothed over because of good relationships or because of general philosophical alignment. But I think also in those kinds of cultures or those kinds of teams, Uh, you have a lot of blind spots because it's like it's all smooth sailing until something disrupts you that nobody considered because it was an anti-pattern or just something (laughs) that you were not looking out for at all, which has definitely happened to me. Right, right. And I remember, I I think it was in uh, a Brad Pitt movie, World War Z maybe, they introduced this concept from... Um, the Jewish culture of the tenth man, which I don't even know if it was if that's apocryphal or not, but the idea was like when nine people in that culture agree on what's happening at you know in a in a position of power around a big decision, the tenth person has to disagree mm-hmm. just to like just to provide some you know countervailing force, right? And I and I think that's really interesting, like a required disagreement, like a you, required somebody's got to challenge us a little bit. Um, So, so given that it's important, I think the biggest question is why, and this is true, I'm I'm asking both for you and me and for the ready and for culture at large, why is disagreement so hard for us? The short answer is, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) And I'm, I'm going to be curious to get other perspectives on this. I noticed that disagreement and productive conflict seem especially difficult in American culture. Uh, when I visit other countries or when I work on projects with companies based in other places, I do find a lot of other cultures seem to be much less passive aggressive than particularly right, right. American business culture. We did a project earlier this year with a Dutch bank, and it was so refreshing and also kind of startling that there was just a very high level of directness. And it didn't even mm-hmm. feel so much like conflict. It just felt like disagreement. Like I say a thing and then you say a different thing that doesn't agree (laughs) with my thing because you don't agree with it. And uh, it was it was really refreshing in that project to just be able to have that level of dialogue and not do the thing that I see happen in American teams, not all of them, but pretty 
consistently where somebody immediately is like, well, I think we're saying the same thing or like, I don't think right. this is as big of an issue as you think it is. Or like, I think we're talking about How can I get mom other. and dad to stop fighting? Yeah. It's like, how can we like smooth this over to make the discomfort end? And there's a question of just like, why does it even have to be uncomfortable that you right. and I, who have completely different lived experiences, have different perspectives on things? Like that seems yeah. intuitively super obvious. But then in the room, when we respect each other, but we don't see eye to eye on something, it can be very difficult to just get through that. I think it's because, at least in my experience, from a very young age, one of the main identifiers of friendship was alignment on how we see the world, right? Like you right. like the same band I like, you want to do the same thing on Friday night that I like, we play the same video game, We like whatever it is, there was like this, when we have things in common, therefore we are friends, right? Mm -hmm. Therefore we are connected. And the safety of alignment was kind of a big part of cliques and social groups growing up. And so then I think when you translate that to a workplace where for most of us, just given our lives and neighborhoods, like a lot of our friends, a lot of the people we spend the most time with and have the most connection with are at work. And then we go into a place where it's like, okay, now we're going to have a disagreement. It feels like disagreements are tantamount to disruption of that relationship, right? Well, like if you and I disagree, exactly right. might we not be friends anymore? Right. And that's scary. I think that's so true. And I have the feeling at least once a week where I want to say something to someone that I care about that right. is uh, disruptive or it is disagreeing or it's a counter narrative or it's something that upset me. And there's just another voice in my head that's like, ah, don't like upset the apple cart or like what, right, you know, right. there's even a question that immediately comes to mind of like, do you want to spend your relationship capital on this <laughs> thing? Which it, it doesn't feel like it should be. It doesn't feel like just because you disagree with me, it means you don't like me. Uh, right. But those things have gotten so wrapped up together. And in fact, I, I studied this model a few years ago that was really about acceptance, but there was a formula put forth that made a lot of sense to me in this sort of domain. And it was the idea that you can only be as courageous as you are caring or loving. Mm. And that most dysfunction in communication comes because people are weighing too heavily on one end or the other of that. And when I look back at a lot of my worst moments uh, in conflict, I would say I was too courageous and not caring enough. I didn't mm, like mm -hmm. I didn't hold the relationship as sacred, even as I engaged in disagreement. And then I see a lot of people on the other end where it's like, I care about you so much that I am unwilling to courageously tell you that I think you're wrong. Right. And this kind of connects to the feedback episode that we totally. have recently recorded, um, which, yeah, there, there's like the act of how we give and receive feedback. And then there's this sort of, which is part of, I guess, this bigger narrative about disagreement in general. And I guess not all feedback has to be a disagreement necessarily, but there's a Venn diagram here somewhere. Have you ever had someone or do you have someone in your life now with whom you can have productive disagreement, just that you found your way there and it just seems like the steady state reality? There are a couple of people. I would say my husband and I disagree about things all <laughs> the time. It's become like a relationship meme. We've been married for a long time. And like the joke is that if you take Ed and I to any street corner 
in any city in the world and tell us the destination, we will turn in opposite directions to get there. Right. Like our end state is always, always aligned and our care for each other is always aligned and our method for getting to the end state is usually diametrically opposed. I totally get that. And in in some ways, my relationship with my wife, Britt, is similar. And I don't know if I've mentioned this to you on the podcast, but we have this thing that we've realized we do now after being together for literally 20 years, where um, if I take a stance, she'll take the other stance. And Uh if she takes a stance, I'll take the other stance. And we'll usually end up agreeing. We do it. We literally, I think, do it because it makes the decisions better. Yeah. Like we are doing that 10th man thing, except we're the second man and woman. Right. Right. Yeah. It's really weird. It's and it's really not weird. conscious. No. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. It's like you just want to like be a little bit provocative. So I, I think that's really true of Ed. The other person that I have that with is Allie, who's a, one mm-hmm. of our team members. I've known Allie for a really long time. This is the second company we worked at together. And I really trust her very deeply. And I care about her very much. And I can just ask her to be really honest with me. And she will tell me the straight shit, even when she doesn't think I want to hear it. And she's probably right. Right. Uh, And so I really rely on her as a foil in our work to be like, you need to tell me if I'm being crazy. Uh, yeah, and she yeah. really, she really does. And we really will wrestle with something where both of us are like not easily satisfied in our work with our work. And, uh, and I think it's really productive to, to, to have oppositional views on things a lot of times. The thing I take away from that and what's really itching me is it seems like when you ask that question to people, the answer is usually someone I have known or worked with or yes. lived with for a long time. A long time. And the thing I'm really sitting with that I want to ask our guest is, can I short circuit that? Because I'd really like to get there faster. Yes. I don't want to have to be with you for 10 years to be able to have that state. And I, you know, I'd love to figure out how to access that. So just to switch gears a bit, we work in a self-managing system at the ready and we help other organizations move in that direction. What do you think is different or similar about conflict in a self-managing system versus in a traditional hierarchical kind of paradigm? Well, I think in a traditional environment, you obviously have a tiebreaker or someone to intervene or deal with the conflict in most cases, or you can just look up the ladder somewhere and someone will deal with it for you. Um, So I think that is present. There's still a lot of conflict at parallel, you know, two different directors, two different groups, what have you. Um, So I don't, I'm not, not to say that there isn't any, but it has a way of getting resolved that's maybe more autocratic. Um, and, and I'm not sure that that actually resolves it, to be honest. I think that that uh, moves us forward with a decision or an outcome, but it doesn't necessarily find connection and pr- real production between those two points of view. In the self-managed system, I think we struggle from the opposite problem, which is there's not always a place to go. In fact, usually mm-hmm. there's nowhere to go. You're kind of just with your conflict. And what I hear us doing a lot is we, we air our disagreement or our conflict to the group and kind of let it linger like who will who will solve this for me right. um, and and then and then of course we come to realize very quickly like oh yeah it's me and I have to either go have that conversation or go have that disagreement and try to get something out of it so I think that that is true I also think though that we have mechanisms like for example the way we govern the firm and create our working agreements is a disagreement mechanism like it right. is that process the way we collect 
reactions and objections and things like that, um, you know, that does that does integrate perspectives and it mm-hmm. does do the work of productive disagreement, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly not the only way and it's not the most fluid way to do it, but it does it does do that work. So I think we have some tools in place to to help with that. But I think what tends to happen is because we're we're self-managing and self-organizing is people, to your point, kind of pick their pick their battles quite right. literally. Like when when is it worth it? When do I want to expend the energy, the capital, um, et cetera? And and I think the aspiration would be that we get better at at viewing the the disagreement and the conflict as as something that is inherently productive, you know, that is generative. And so, uh, you know, I know, for example, when we created our quote unquote conflict resolution process, one of the people in the firm was like, no, 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 let's not call it that. Let's call it the conflict transformation process, right? Because mm-hmm. it brands it as like, we're, we're transforming it into something else. And I think that is the aspiration, but I don't know that that's always the lived reality. Right. Couple things that occurred to me as you were talking. One is I just last week coached a Duke program as I do a few times a year. And so I looked at a lot of assessments and, you know, I've looked at hundreds of 360 assessments in my career (laughs) as a coach and almost always the lowest category of readers is who? Your peers. Always. It's always your peers. And for all of the reasons that we know, right? Like, we're in some ways we're in competition with them. And in some ways we're working on misaligned incentives. And in some ways we have competing agendas. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff wrapped up in there. It's like the, you know, it's the sibling layer and in self-management there is, of course, there's an implied power structure. Of course there are different levels of experience, but on a project we are (laughs) peers. Like we, it is not like it is my decision how this project goes. And Allie just has to do what I say. Like, I have more experience. She does defer to me on some things. And if she really strongly feels that I'm wrong about something, I don't get to just say like, no, it's this way. And what I see in a lot of projects, and particularly in our space, because we are in a young space where there's not a playbook that's repeatable, that's like, this is the one way to do this. What you see in a lot of duos and trios is people who are like, we have differing opinions. We're all pretty sure ours is right. And there's not a way necessarily to figure that out. And in some ways, that's just that's just the macrocosm of what is happening in the micro, which is even if just one of us was just doing what we wanted to do, we still don't know if it's right. That's right. Um, it, just because we have a direction doesn't mean we have the correct one. And And, you know, back to complexity, my response to that is like, great, you should do one of them and find out how it goes. And then, you know, if it didn't go well, next time do the other one. That's exactly uh, And, and right. you know, if you have to flip a coin, then flip a coin. And of course, you could also, you know, use some kind of a decision-making protocol to evaluate those options more carefully. Um, and so I think that's possible too. But the point being, like, even when you all agree what to do, that doesn't make it right. That just no. means three random people agree what to do. Exactly. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was having gone through the conflict transformation process that we created, I think only one time, what about it worked and what about it did not? Well, I think the thing that works is if you have a way of of handling conflict or things that that are um, you know disagreements that need to be 
dealt with or mediated to move forward, then at least you have a path to walk that everyone's consented to. So just saying, this is how we do this. And the mm-hmm. first step is this. And the second step is that. And in our case, our, our process is actually a set of different processes leading to what is ultimately some mediation and arbitration. But like mm-hmm. the earlier phases are like, have you checked in with yourself? Are you thinking straight? You know, right. what, where are you coming from? And then maybe having a conversation with the person and actually trying to have productive disagreement using some of the tools, right? So I think th- th- there are different levels to to that path. Um, but what, yeah, what worked is we know where we're at on the rails and we know what, what happens next if we can't find a way through. And so that that is quite helpful. What is really hard about it is that, and this is true of almost any process or, or you know, training regimen, is it's only as good as you when you mm-hmm. do it. So, like, how do you show up to that? If the first step is check in with yourself, well, you can do that at a Dalai Lama level, or you can do that at like, a, oh no, I'm fucking right and moving on. <laughs> you know, like you can you can show up to that differently. And so, I think that um, that's the gap, or that's the that's the place where it's wanting is. Um, How well do we do it and how well do we do it for each other? Yeah. So I feel like at this point, it could be useful to have another voice in the mix. And I was thinking that the perfect guest to talk to us about this would be Buster Benson. He is the author of Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. So when (laughs) we get back after the break, we will be joined by Buster. Thank God. Ready, set, go. Hey, everybody. We're back with Buster Benson, author and co-founder of 750words.com. That's the number, 750words.com. Buster, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about what you did before you wrote this book, this Why Are We Yelling book that led to the the genesis of it. Why, why write a book about disagreement? So before I wrote this book, I had spent 20 plus years in the tech world um, as a product manager, engineer, designer, uh, various roles in from large companies like Amazon, Twitter, and Slack to my own smaller companies. Um, And my most recent job was at Patreon, uh, building out um, the product there. And uh, yeah, so the reason I wrote this book was because as a product thinker, as a product builder, and as like a organizational sort of design person, you're always working with people trying to bring their disparate interests and and sort of incentives um, into alignment with each other so you can actually get something done. Um, and then it was only after realizing that the skill had been brewing in me for a while uh, that I realized it was also applicable to every kind of conversation or disagreement that might happen, whether it's political or between friends or relational. Um, so it just turns out that disagreement is everywhere. Well, you picked a good time for uh, disagreement because <laughs> I feel like it is present in the culture, <laughs> political, economical, yes. you know, social. I, I doubt it's going to go anywhere anytime soon either. So, uh, You talk a lot about productive disagreement. So tell us what you mean by that and how do we get more of that in our working lives? Yeah, a productive disagreement is, you know, we often think about the purpose of a disagreement being, you know, to be right, you know, to see who's right and moving on. (laughs) I see productive disagreements as 
broader than that. It might be agreement, but it could be so many other things too. It could be learning something about the world that you didn't understand before, seeing a new perspective. It could be building a relationship with the people you're talking to. You know, so like sometimes disagreement is the best sort of crucible for building relationships and trust. Mm-hmm. And it could also be enjoyable. And I think enjoying disagreement is something that we just have really lost touch of as a culture. Um, and yet it's so... So there's so much potential for enjoyment and disagreement because it's where our interests come to the surface and our passions and we get to hash it out with people. See, I want to know more about that because I, I don't know if I've just—I dis- <laughs> don't know if I've enjoyed a disagreement in a while. Yeah, and I want to learn. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because you could think of disagreement as a sport, right? And you know, if you think of if you go to the gym and you're like, I'm just here to, you know lift some weights and it's like just a chore, you're, you're not going to enjoy it. But if you go and, you know, do it in, for fun and you play a sport, you might still get just as much exercise, but you're enjoying the process. I see disagreement as the same thing. If you go in seeking out um, something that sparks your interest and your passion, you're going you're gonna to actually be able to enjoy it quite a bit. And do both sides have to be committed to enjoying it for you to enjoy it? Oh, no. Think, thankfully not. Uh, <laughs> because then it would never happen. I think one of the things about um, these tips is that they're all single player. Even though you're talking with other people, um, you're sort of the curator of the conversation as much as the other person. And you can steer things into a direction where you're asking questions that spark their interest, where you're you know, pointing out things that you don't understand about them and asking you know, probing questions that might surprise you. All these things where you could do it even if the other person is completely hostile towards you to begin with um, and hopefully flip that around so that you know, eventually you are on the same side. I'm curious, Buster, we kicked around a little bit in the first part of this episode why we have come to a place where conflict avoidance is so common culturally. Why do you think that is? I think it's because we just have not treated it as a competency to to practice and to get good at as a skill. Um, and so if you imagine, you know, you're skiing down a mountain and you've never, you never, never thought about skiing as a skill before, you're just going to avoid all of the good jumps, all of the good paths, because you're afraid that you might screw up. Um, but once you sort of see these like, oh, these jumps could be exactly the point of this whole conversation, <laughs> you steer towards them. Um, and so mm-hmm. when you think about it as a way to practice having conversations to get into the flow of a conversation where the bumps are part of the fun, um, then you can seek them out rather than avoid them. I love that. So since that's about perceiving it differently, are there other misconceptions about disagreement that you think are kind of foundational that we have to blow apart? Yeah. I mean, so we sort of touched on what the fruit of disagreement are. It's it's not merely to prove that you're right. Obviously, we know that. But we've never really talked about, well, if it's not about that, then what is it about? Um, And so that's where the enjoyment and the insight and the connection come in. But another big one is that we think disagreements are about facts and evidence. And I, I found through just teasing this apart, having many disagreements with people, is that the facts and the evidence are often the least important thing in the conversation. Um, More important than that is why do you find this issue to be important? What are your values? What are your beliefs? Mm. Why do you care about this? Like, What are the underlying motivations that make you want to explore this topic, you know, at a, in a work situation, it could be, you know, impact towards the customer, or it could just be climbing the corporate ladder, or it could be ending the meeting. There's a lot of different reasons why we might be using a conversation um, in a disagreement form. And then the last one that I think is even more important than all of, than 
the facts and the values is the the proposals. Like what is going to be useful from this conversation? How can we take everything mm. we know and we believe and think is important and then do something with it so that we learn something and continue moving forward rather than being stuck in this, what I call arguing at the gate, like arguing about whether or not it's a problem in the first place. Well, let's just assume that we disagree about that and test it out and see what happens. We've talked a lot about just the number of avoidant strategies that you see. And I think the sort of argument at the gate thing is is really right on. So your book suggests that there are eight things you can try to have better disagreements. Tell us a little bit about uh, which one you found to be the most powerful, maybe which one is the hardest. Uh, and for our listeners, go read the book so you can learn about all eight. But for our purposes, tell us about powerful yeah. and difficult. Yeah. Okay. So... I think the first one is one of the most important and powerful because it's sort of the foundation for the rest, which is to watch how anxiety sparks. And by that, I just mean reframing anxiety and cognitive dissonance as a as an invitation to something that's important to you that you want mm. to discuss rather than as something to avoid. And reframing anxiety as a signpost to your values is so important. And um, once you see it that way, you know, there is everything else becomes possible. So one, one tip I recommend is to just start a disagreement journal where anytime you have a disagreement that goes poorly or that goes well, just you know journal about it and sort of tease apart, like what was it about? What were the values behind it? Um, and by doing this, you not only start to reframe your anxiety, but you build the pathways so that next time you're you know, in an argument, you'll remember, you know, you, you might not remember what are the tips I'm supposed to do here, but you'll remember, I'm going to have to write about this later. Oh, wait, okay, so I can actually <laughs> reframe what actually happens in my journal tomorrow when I write about it now. Um, and writing about it oftentimes just like helps you practice those mental pathways in ways that if you just read a book, you're not going to necessarily have as ready habits to go um, in a conversation. What might you write down uh, when you, let's say you had a disagreement that was interesting to you today, what, like, what are the kind of things you're going to write down and document? I oftentimes start with where did it go off track? So, you know, what was the first thing that the other person said or that happened that made me get defensive or made me, um, imagine a battle, um, and then think about like, what was threatened? What, what, what did I feel was threatened by that person saying this or by this thing happening and tease it back to the belief, like whether it's like, I value the livelihood of others, or I value, you know, that my work is seen, um, anything like that and start there. The second thing I would do is talk about like, what is it really about? Like, what could I have said that would have gotten it to be about that value and not about whatever took it off track, because often we just end up arguing about something that's not even important to us. Um, so how can we get it back mm -hmm. on track? And those two things are the sort of habits, I think, that help you in the, in the real moment of having a conversation eventually keep it on track. Yeah, Buster, what you said about anxiety really resonates with me. And a lot of the work that Aaron and I have have done and talked about is really using both like bodily sensation and then emotional signal to understand where you're at in terms of whether you're coming from a place of ego or you're coming from a place of values. I think even talking about how people get to that state is valuable because mm -hmm. I don't think we can take for granted that people understand really what their anxiety looks and feels and sounds like to them. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of folks that most of us interact with every single day are not embodied and in touch and integrated in that way. So when you talk about that, like what the anxiety is sparking, how do you counsel people to 
get there and mm-hmm. to really notice when their anxiety is is talking at them. Yeah, this is interesting because this is the act of disagreement that we're now moving into, which is if you can help the <laughs> other person understand what they're feeling anxious about, you've actually had the conversation. <laughs> um, and mm. so asking the right questions about like, okay, well, what I'm hearing is this, is it because you value that this happens or is it because like, what is it? Tell me more about like, what am I missing about your position that is causing me to interpret it this way versus the way you really want to be interpreted. Um, And asking these Mm -hmm. questions is, is the path to navigating the conversation. So it sounds to me, and I'm curious if this came up in your research for the book or in your own journey around this, but it sounds to me like we're echoing some of those nonviolent communication principles around, you know, what are I feeling? What are my needs? What are my requests? Mm-hmm. Like there, there definitely feels like there's a connection. Yes. There. That first chapter about anxiety is definitely has a lot of influence from nonviolent communication. Although one thing I would append to it is that oftentimes that exercise of sort of stating your needs and making the request requires you to pull the emotion out of it. I think it's important that we keep mm-hmm. the emotion in um, because that is that's the you know the the slaloming down you know the slope um, part of it that's exciting um, and so keep keep that you know interest and but but root it in like this is a value that I have this is something I think is important and not as a I am angry at you for doing this um, like the emotion below anger or frustration or um, you know um, just f- that feeling of futility is usually something a lot more gentle um, and warm. And um, that's that's the kind of emotion we want to keep in it. So then it sounds like even if you're operating at a Yoda level of disagreement, you know, fluency, you still want some emotion, you like you're still in touch with emotion, you're not having these like emotionless disagreements. Yes. You're just feeling it and using it differently. Is that right? Like you still get anxious when you Absolutely. argue, right? I mean, imagine a world where we didn't get anxious about anything. I think that would be a world that we've like ceased to be alive in. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think it's really important to keep the emotions in there. And, you know, in fact, that's the whole point of doing them, right? The whole point of having these conversations is to basically find flow with our emotions and conversations with others so that we can actually talk about the most important things. Um, If we have found a way around uh, feeling any strong emotions about a topic, We've often we've it's it's dead to us. It's no longer, you know, the thing that keeps us interested in it, invested in it. The I the whole notion of using emotions as signal, even that is so anathema in so many of the corporate cultures we see. You know, the the old sort of like leave the feelings at the door thing is still real. And I think I'll only speak for myself, but I am often caught off guard and surprised when I hear that language and that narrative because it feels like so inhumane and so sort of old school to me. But you still see it a lot. I still see that a lot in groups where it's like there's, you know, there's no room for feelings here. Yes, they're always going to be there somewhere and they'll turn into resentment, frustration and even like unhealthy lifestyles and things like these. This repressing our, our feelings is causing us to become a you know, depressed, anxious, often early, you know, heart attacks and resorting to alcohol and drugs and suicide. These things actually affect our lives. Um, We have to let them out. Um, And I think that the mistake there is that we don't have a shared language around separating that feeling of like responding to a threat and feeling angry or mean versus the thing that's below. That's like, what was threatened? What, what is that thing that you care about below the surface that, that needs to be seen and heard by others? So, In the book, you talk a little bit about asking 
questions that invite surprising answers, which I think is a cool trick for getting out of that loop of just like being too deep in the emotion. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how to do that and how to do yeah, that Yeah, well? I use the analogy of um, two things, the game of 20 questions versus the game of Battleship. Um, in Battleship, you can ask a question that's like, hey, is there a ship at B4? <laughs> um, and if, it's, if they, they say yes or no. And that you're, and we do a lot of questions like that where we're like, hey, are you a racist? <laughs> or are you, you know, just, you know, an, a mean, evil person? Um, and no matter what they say, we're not going to be surprised. We're either going to think they're a liar or that they're admitting, you know, guilt versus, you know, when you're playing 20 questions, you're taking the entire world of things you don't know and trying to cut it in half with something and say like, Hey, tell me, you know, where did this belief come from? Or, you know, why is this important to you? What am I missing about, you know, about you that, you know, that would help me understand where this is coming from. Um, these kind of questions, no matter what they say, they're going to be new information. Um, they're going to be something that you learn about that person. It's also going to give you a chance to, um, move from feeling potentially anxious and triggered to listening for a while, buy you some time as they sort of explore this, this answer um, and give them a chance to move from like this black and white world where it's like, okay, I'm just trying to win this argument to like, actually, I would just want to tell you a bit of context about, you know, where I'm coming from. Um, and it shifts the whole conversation around. Um, and so I think, you know, of all the tips, this is probably the one that's the easiest to do and often the most effective right out of the gate. You could just say like, what am I missing about your, your life? your formative events, the things that happened to you that make this so important to you um, and help me get there with, with understanding that perspective. Um, Cause you don't have to actually understand anything about it to go going into it. I'd love to hear a story buster of a gnarly disagreement that you've been in that you were able to turn into something that felt like productive conflict. Yeah, this is, there's a bunch. Um, so I could go into gun control, immigration reform, ghosts, and spirituality, um, <laughs> all these different topics where I've yes! I've had many, many ghosts. unproductive conversations. Ghosts? Yes. Let's do ghosts. Okay, ghosts. Yeah, because that's something Rodney and I disagree yeah, Aaron about. and I have a lot of fights about ghosts. Wow, awesome. I'm, I'm uh, Honestly, I have too. Um, and this is why I put it in the book. It's like, if I can find a way to be have productive conversations about ghosts, and I know that this is working, <laughs> because I just haven't been able to. I'm very much on the scientific, like, oh, they don't exist. If they did, there would be some evidence for them. And you know, if they don't exist, how can you pretend they do? Um, so what I did was I had a salon at my house where I just invited a bunch of people and so like, bring your perspectives on ghosts and we're just going to talk about them and share the stories. Um, and we're not going to be about trying to prove if they're right or wrong. What we're trying to do is understand like, where is each person coming from? Like what, how does this belief help them in their lives? How does this belief, how is it formed? Um, and just get deeper into the, um, personal histories of these belief systems. And I had zero expectation to change my opinion about them because I was still locked in this, like, show me the evidence sort of mentality. Um, what I came away with after the doing this and sort of following up with conversations with people and just inviting more of these was I found a different pattern. I found that the people that believed in ghosts were really using this as a doorstop to mystery of the, about the universe and saying like, I refuse to close the door to this belief entirely because I just don't think I'll ever know everything there is to know about the universe. And to that and that, and that framing, it became this language of like, this is how I talk about mystery. This is how I talk about the unknown. And this is how I talk about my own relationship with the unknown. And I was like, wow, that makes sense to me. 
this is a way to talk about something because when I talk about mystery, it's really dry and boring because I just use scientific words and it's no fun. <laughs> so I understand why this is more effective. And that, you know, has actually, for me, um, led to an, a whole series of weird um, interests now. Like, you know, I'm now into like tarot reading because I'm like, well, these are just basically ways to bring affordances into a conversation to talk about the subconscious and the unknown and all these things. I'm like, I'm really into it now. Yes. That's so funny. Yeah. The, you're, you're mirroring our lives right now. Cause, uh, cause Rodney is, is reading tarot right now. My wife is, is doing the same. Uh, so this so is wh- who's, who's on which side are you, what are the, what is What's a typical argument? I definitely, uh, believe in the spirit world. And I believe that the veil is fairly thin nice. and, uh, <laughs> you sound a lot more like Aaron. I feel like, though, it, what's interesting to me about the story you just told is that I feel like you came to the same place that we've come to, but in a like more positive and evolved way. Like, I think where Aaron and I have netted out is that it's like, I can't prove to him that ghosts are real and he can't prove to me that they're not. Mm-hmm. So, like, we'll just let it be there. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, I think, you know, you finding that these people use that as sort of their their connection to the other is a, is a really cool way of thinking about yeah. it. That's not scientific. Also side note, there's definitely a ghost living in my Ooh, lake house. Oh. A, Aaron, a good one or a when bad you one? meet him, his name, <laughs> I'm not sure yet, cool. actually. Uh, he, yeah, he is very present and very large and masculine. And uh, funnily, my husband who can be a bit skeptical about these things as well, he's has been convinced because my dog barks mm. at him in the mm. night at the ghost. Mm. Uh, yeah, right uh, around the same know. time that I yes. feel him, the, dogs the, sense the dog energy. comes from the other end of the house to bark. So uh, I'm 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 pretty high conviction yeah. on this particular. Yeah, test. and uh, so one one of the things I'll I'll just add to this is that you know when you argue about what is real, um, I put that in the realm of the head, like sort of like the the informational realm, where you should be able to look this up in a, in a journal somewhere. Um, oftentimes, what I found is that when you're in that realm it's better to go to the realm of the hands where it's either it's about how is this useful? Like, what is this, what is this topic doing for me in my life mm-hmm. that makes it useful? It makes me sort of seek it out. Is it, it could be about something emotional. It could be about sort of telling a story about the past. It could be about relating to, uh, you know, people who have passed, you know, who have, that were important to you. Um, or it could be about just like, you know, being interested in, in the spooky stuff. You know? So when you think about the use, the pragmatic sort of purpose of it, um, it has all this other rich flavor that um, makes the, the factual evidence seem really dry and boring uh, after the fact. I love that. And, and to, to bring us back to, to work and to the yeah. pragmatic away from the lake house for a second, what is your advice for someone who has been avoiding disagreement in the workplace and is now like, all right, heard mm-hmm. productive disagreement. I want to start doing this stuff. Is there a, like a slow on ramp? Is it, do we start with the journaling? Do we start with the questions? Like what, what should I do tomorrow differently than today? If I'm if I'm now ready to kind of try to get more out of my disagreements, yeah, that's that's really the most important thing to to figure out because it's it's just not viable for a lot of people to think about productive disagreement as something they put into practice. Um, so I do recommend the journaling if journaling is something that you know, resonates with mm. you. Not everyone likes to write, um, so if you don't, you know, going on a long walk and just musing about your past, con- you know, conversations. Um, having another conversation with somebody else about it, you know, sort of turn it into this, this under the surface, uh, 
practice into something above the surface where you can now talk about it as a thing that you're doing and just reframe it from, oh, wait, I really screwed up that conversation to, okay, that conversation was probably above my skill level. Um, how can I, you know, build up to it again, like by practicing on, on simpler ones or easier ones and, you know, just see it as a skill, you know, we're, we're not going to expect to, you know, be able to play, you know, Moonlight Sonata on the piano the first time we stand down, sit down to the, t- the piano, but we could build up to it. And a lot of these productive conversations that need to happen, we're just thrown in the deep end. We're like, okay, now go talk to your racist uncle. Um, and you're just like, well, this is way over my ability. Build up to it. Talk to your, you know, slightly you know, conservative cousin first and, you know, build your way up. <laughs> so is there anything we haven't hit on that you think we should have that would be, you know, important for listeners to know? Um, you know, I think part of the hope that I have for this conversation and this sort of topic is that we all think of conversation as a skill because we have to feel it internally um, before we can expect it from our leaders, our politicians, our bosses, our CEOs. Um, they're not, we're not going to be even be able to know what to ask them to do until we can feel it ourselves. Um, and so I think that's really vitally important that we see this responsibility and take it very seriously that we have to be able to model and feel what it means to have a productive conversation so that we can then expect it from others um, above us and, you know, who have more power and that can actually materially affect the you know, large parts of the world. Um, Cause we have to solve some of these problems. And the only way we can get through it is by having these disagreements in, in a productive way. Well, in this day and age, I can't think of very many skills that would be a uh, higher order and more important than, than this one. Um, so that seems like a good place to draw things to a close. Uh, Buster, thank you so much for, for joining us today and for teaching us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Rodney, always a pleasure. Happy to be here. And a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin uh, in the booth for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, an org design and transformation partner to some of the world's biggest brands. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. We would love your feedback, your guest ideas, your episode topic ideas. Uh, If you like what you're hearing, a review would go a long way to ensuring that this show finds the people who need it. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.